I'm from Canada, where you'll probably need a sweater. But there's sleds and skis and really big trees. It's like Narnia, but better. You've been told that Canada's cold, but it only snows till May. Hi, I'm from Canada. Ayy. Hi from Canada, everyone. I'm Victoria Betenko, the host of Hi from Canada, the podcast. To keep up learning about Canada, we are diving back to some of our interviews recorded with Canadian students earlier during the pandemic. Think of that as our chapter three of the podcast, where we cover how education looks here. Before we start this episode, I would like to invite you to join us on Instagram and follow us for more IELTS and English learning tips. Hello everyone, my name is Victoria and I keep interviewing Canadian students to let you know more and to give you more information about studying in Canada. Today I'm very excited to introduce uh, Emindu. He is a Canadian uh, student of one of the best Canadian universities and maybe even the best one this year, University of Toronto. And Emindu is a medical student, uh, which is even more exciting. So First of all, I've heard that the competition among students who want to enter um, into any medical schools in Canada is enormous. What could you tell us about that at first? Well, you have heard correctly. Uh, as with all countries in the world, medical schools tend to be one of the more desired destinations for post-secondary education. Uh, and so, yes, it is quite competitive. Um, it depends on the school. It depends on the year. But roughly, on average, there are approximately between 70 to 100 applicants per seat. So you can imagine what uh, what level of, of academic aspirations you should be aiming towards. Uh, generally, you know, uh, students are advised to aim for the top 5% of their class. Uh, you're advised to have an extracurricular portfolio that puts you in that similar ranking as well. But uh, to be brief, yes, it is competitive, but uh, that's, that's part of the process. Could you highlight maybe any requirements, some specific requirements to get into a medical school? Yeah, so there's a few basic requirements, and these are universal for both Canada and the United States, if you're curious. So the first thing is you need to graduate some with some level of, I shouldn't say graduate, you need to have some university undergraduate education. Uh, I say you don't have to graduate because some students apply either in second year or third year. So you cannot enter medical school directly after high school if you uh, want to study in Canada or the United States. That has its advantages and, of course, disadvantages. So that's the first requirement. You need to have some undergraduate training with the other international destinations. Second thing is you need to write an exam called the Medical College Admittance Test, the MCAT or MCAT. Uh, this is a very long and very grueling exam. It is the bane of existence of every medical student. We all hate it, but it's a very long exam and it's a very important exam because you're ranking. So the exam ranks you relative to other applicants. It's okay if you don't do too well because it's relative to everyone else. But in general, you do need to rank relatively high among your colleagues to have a chance of getting into medical school. In Canada, we're not so focused on that MCAT standing. Um, so in most schools, you have to pass a baseline threshold. You have to have a certain uh, above a certain score for every category, and then you're considered to have met that requirement. In the United States, it's a little different. 
So there they actually take that MCAT score and it's competitive score, meaning if I'm dealing with two applications and one has a better score than the other, they'll take the better MCAT score. The third thing is, and these are now slightly less formal requirements, but still very important nonetheless, you need a very strong extracurricular portfolio. You have to have done something outside of the classroom that's noteworthy, be it research, be it social justice work, be it music, be it something. You have to have done something that makes you stand out from your colleagues, and you need to be able to put that in a story, in an application, and get that across. So once you've met those requirements, you'll submit an application, and then you'll be called in for an interview where you're asked a whole bunch of other questions about when your personality is assessed. And at the end of that entire process, finally, you get into medical school and you go forward from there. It seems like they choose best of the best. So um, I've also heard from you, actually, that now, even as a student, you are in contact with COVID, right, uh, issues, and you are to do something with that. Could you highlight that also? Because that's really interesting. Yeah, so uh, it depends on the student's comfort level. So this isn't a mandatory portion of our training. Um, but you might have seen around the world that as the healthcare systems get strained to their limits, uh, the next sort of group of people that are available to help are the medical students. So a lot of medical students volunteered as screeners. So for example, when people are entering a hospital, we would do a very quick assessment to see if they have any symptoms consistent with COVID. And if they do, to make sure that they go to that appropriate assessment rather than going in with the general population. Um, some of my colleagues, we've begun taking cursory roles in the wards. And the most popular option for helping out during COVID, in addition to personalized things, for example, like research, which we can talk about later, which is my big uh, contribution, was working with contact tracing. Uh, so this is hugely important. Uh, and certainly we've seen where governments fail to enact proper contact tracing, infections just go higher and higher. It's an incredibly cheap way of making sure that you contain an infection. What that entails is if someone gets an infection, you find that person, you identify whomever they might have come into contact with, you in turn contact those people and let them know, hey, you need to get tested immediately. All right. So, and you've mentioned the research project also. So that was the one which you've just covered, right? We, when you study patients, right? And you know more about them. Yeah. So that's, that's contact tracing. But uh, another big thing that a lot of medical students, if not if I, I might be so bold as to say all medical students have at some level is research. Um, even if we're not aspiring to a career in academic medicine, even if we don't want to become a professor and do research full time, a lot of medical students have some research experience for application purposes or just to have as a sort of checkbox. Uh, now, I've treated that somewhat differently. I genuinely enjoy research, so I tend to do a little bit more of it than perhaps my colleagues do. But this is my big contribution during COVID. My lab and myself, we were looking for ways to control the inflammation that happens after COVID infections. So we were looking to see if we can use any of our existing drugs in the capacity of COVID patients to modulate that inflammation. So you'll find a lot of these stories among medical students. All of us have some cool research that we're doing. So in addition to learning about medicine, to also push back the frontiers of medicine just a little bit as well. Well, let's get back to the study process. We've received many questions from students, from their parents, and um, we are actually really curious in the study process. How would you describe the study process in your university, in your medical school, how everything is organized? So the first and the most fundamental difference between medical school and your regular undergraduate pro programs, at least at the University of Toronto, is that your year becomes scheduled around blocks. Student asks, how many courses do you take? 
technically I take one course per year, but that one course has many, many different elements to it. So for example, right now we're studying our neurology block. So that's all we're doing for the next six weeks, purely neurology. But within that block, there's neuroanatomy that we have to learn. There's clinical skills that we have to learn. For example, if a patient presents with a stroke or a seizure or a migraine or et cetera, what will they present with and how can you find them? And how do you examine that patient make sure it's not something else? And then there's, of course, the actual medical lessons that we have to learn, right? What are the disease pathologies? There's drugs that we have to learn about. So a lot of little elements within that one course. Uh, let me just show you what, a, or let me tell you what a typical week will look like. So in a typical week, we'll have some level of anatomy. Uh, before COVID, that meant going into the anatomy lab, doing dissections, learning about the different relevant areas to make sure that we understand the actual lessons. So part two, speaking of that, lessons, right? We have lectures where uh, professors, very eminent professors usually for the University of Toronto, most of whom have discovered a lot of the elements that we're actually learning about, uh, they will go over the diseases that we need to know, and that's our typical lectures. In addition to that, we'll have something called a case-based learning. So there's a lot of elements outside of the lecture that are highly relevant for students to appreciate, and that's what the case-based learning is about. So we get a module. This module describes a patient. So there's no answers. It just says this patient comes in, they have this, 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 and this, and, and then they have a conversation, right? So it's presented exactly as you would with a regular person. And the idea is that you just get a bunch of medical students together and let them debate these things and hash it out. And occasionally we have disagreements about what to do. Occasionally we have disagreements about what treatment courses we think are best. So we go through that. And then once we come up with our answers, we then have a second case-based learning session with a faculty member, so an expert doctor in that field, who then tells us you know, what they think is the right answer, what they, we think is the wrong answer. Uh, then we have clinical skills, right, where we have, well, we have a large module set to do. But this is all about learning what to look out for and then how to test people. So for example, you might see you know, doctors doing all these like, things like tapping, use their stethoscopes, right? manipulating people's hands and all of these little exam techniques. So that's what we learn in clinical skills. That's a half day. That's a very long class, especially on an online setting, which is not normal. We used to do all of this in person. But uh, so that's all about learning the practical skills of becoming, becoming a doctor. And then that's where usually patients will come in and you would interview the patients and you would get a little bit more of a taste for all of those. So that's what a typical week looks like. Uh, you can imagine each of those things that I described to you has its own assessment. Clinical skills are assessed in a final thing called an OSCE, which is a, a practical exam. You walk into a room, you read a prompt, you do the exam, you leave the room, and you do it, you know, do it over and over again. Um, we have regular exams, so re regular multiple choice short answer exams for the lecture content, uh, which are quite scary. We then also have things called bell ringers, which are for anatomy. What happens there is you see a sample, there's a pin in the sample, and the thing will say, what is this? What does it do? You know, what pathologies are associated with it? Anything you can think of for that particular sample. You answer that question, you have a minute to answer that question, and then you move on to the next station, where there's another sample, another pin, and another set of questions. So that's the life of a medical student. Uh, not, not, again, easy, but there are obviously multiple elements that you want to make sure that your doctors know, and this is the, the best way that the University of Toronto has decided is uh, appropriate to teach that. Well, you've shared so many um, incredible things already, and now I'm even 
even more excited to know about assignments, to know about exams, how they are organized. Earlier, you've told me about the, the system which I would never imagine by myself of assessing future doctors. Could you share a bit more about the exams and the assessment? Yeah, so it's a very good question and unfortunately a very long answer. Um, the, the ultimate reality of this is that there are multiple elements that make up a good doctor. There are your basic medical skills, yes, right? So your understanding of medical knowledge. There's your fundamental skills, your practical skills about listening to hearts and touching livers and all of these other things. And then there's the basic sort of professionalism, how you behave, because all of those elements are fundamental to your performance as a doctor. So speaking about medical knowledge, medical schools have exams. Just like any other university, these are, again, as we've already discussed, these can be online multiple choice exams. These can be short answer exams. These can be those bell ringers, which all of us are terrified of. Uh, so there, there's multiple assessments for the practical classroom medical knowledge. Uh, and then there's the clinical skills assessments. Uh, so those are things that are done, uh, as I described earlier, in a practical way. So you walk into a room, that room will say, perform a cardiac exam on this patient. And then there'll be a patient in the room and an examiner. You walk in, you do the whole introduction, you make sure your hands are clean, you sanitize your hands, and then you go through the procedures, the movements of the cardiac exam. And you have a given set of, I think it's seven minutes to do that exam. Seven minutes is over, you go to the next room. It'll say, for example, percuss this patient for a gastrointestinal issue, right? And then you would do that procedure exactly as you were supposed to, and you go to the next room. Uh, and that's also quite scary for a lot of students. Uh, but uh, again, these are fundamental skills that you have to assess. And then there's that third category, the professionalism assessments. And now the scary part is, and this is not meant to put you off of medical school, but the scary part is that you're always constantly being assessed for this. So for example, if you're constantly showing up late to class, now you can still get 100% on the exam, because you take good notes or you get it from a friend or whatever, but you will get marks off for professionalism. And if that's consistently an issue, then that starts to cause, uh, cause concerns for you. And that's very different from a regular undergraduate or regular university training. If you're studying chemistry, you, know, you can show up or not show up to lectures. That's your problem because that will be reflected in your final mark. That's not so for medical school. If you're, for example, behaving inappropriately with your colleagues, right? If you're too aggressive or too timid, uh, that's a concern. And those will be noted in your professionalism assessments. So it can be intimidating. Uh, in a way, you are always being watched. Uh, but in another way, you know, it's, it's relevant because this is how ultimately future doctors are going to have to behave all the time. So it's good now that we have that training to have that sort of safety net to make sure that we know how to behave and what to do. So multiple kinds of assessment, multiple tests. I'll also add very quickly that there are very few times where you can sort of turn off and relax. There are exams frequently, at least at the University of Toronto. It's not like a final exam situation for a typical university course where you have a midterm and then nothing and then a final. Uh, we have exams, if not every other week, we have some sort of major assessment at least once, a, once every two weeks-ish. And then we have assignments, those case-based learnings every single week that are submitted every week on time. So it's a little bit stressful. Actually, no, it's very stressful, but uh, you learn to live with it. And it's part of the training to make you a good doctor, hopefully. 
in general, in Canada, it's pretty common uh, to give students kind of uh, teamwork where they have to um, co-work with their mates, with their peers, right, and produce kind of a project. Whether anything like that is common for a medical school, what kind of teamwork do you usually have there? So medicine before, in the 1980s, 1970s, up until, you know, much earlier than that, for thousands of years, used to be uh, an individualized profession. So you had a doctor, the doctor said something, you did that, you got better. That was the paradigm. But in the last decades, medicine has been changing fundamentally. Medicine is now a team-based endeavor, at least in the, in the West. So for example, in managing complex patients, yes, there's a doctor and they're ultimately responsible, but there are pharmacists, social workers, physiotherapists, you might have consulting specialists, right? So you start to form this very complex web that the doctor is at the middle of with the patient, but then you have more, more and more of these people around you. So working together in a team, recognizing your own limitations, recognizing that there are others who may know things more than you in this context, all of those are fundamental skills for a doctor to have. And so there is an element of team-based um, learning throughout most, if not all, medical schools. So at the University of Toronto, it's the case-based learning. That's the main sort of teamwork that we do. And this is every week. So we have four hours every week where we meet together among students. We discuss stuff, we debate stuff, we answer questions. And then four more hours where we meet with the same group of students plus the expert, and we do the same thing again. And then we go through the expert's view of the uh, questions and answers as well. So it's challenging at times especially when you have multiple competing opinions. All med students tend to be type A personalities, right? We all think we're the smartest. Um, not really, of course. Uh, we we all, of course differ to our colleagues and our mentors, but uh, we always have very, most of us tend to have strong opinions. Uh, and when those opinions are challenged, you know, it can get a little bit uh, interesting, but that's part of learning to become a doctor. All right. So again, that's uh, just, I don't know, astonishing, right? Because it's um, interesting because that's the real life, right? And uh, it's so much, um, I would say, again, incredible just how much uh, real life is there in this study, right? And that's impressive. Well, um, if we get back to some more impressive things, right, in terms of the study, uh, there is another question from one of our medical students from Russia. Um, Dariash is interested in uh, practical training. When do you start doing like real practical training, right? And uh, whether there are some particular requirements for that or is it anyhow assessed? So what could you say about the practical stuff? So practical training starts at the end of second year. So third year and fourth year. So medical school is four years in, in the West. Largely, there are one or two schools that offer a three-year program, but it's pretty much four years. The three-year schools just eliminate their summers. So it's pretty much four years for everybody. Uh, and the way it works is for the first two years, you have the classroom training that I've been describing. And then for the last two years, you have the practical, the, the clerkship training, as it's called. So for the first two years, you're a pre-clerk, and then you become a medical clerk. Clerks are in hospitals all the time, pretty much. Uh, and what you do is you learn, you apply everything that we just discussed, now in a hospital setting. So that's when that's one opportunity for practical learning. Uh, but the only exception is you can't just come in for the clerkship years. So you can't come in with your medical training and say, hey, I want to be a medical clerk. You have to go through years one, two, three, and four. So 
After that is a process called residency. So at the end of medical school, you're giving your MD, you're officially called a doctor, but you're still not allowed to do anything on your own because you have to do residency next. So this is what in the UK you're called a junior doctor. Uh, so you're in a hospital, you have some responsibility, but you're under the supervision of a more senior doctor and more senior medical team. Uh, and so you would complete that residency. Now that depends entirely on what kind of doctor you want to be. If you want to be a family doctor, your residency is about two years. If you want to be a neurologist, it can be five years. If you want to be a surgeon, it can be five, six, seven years. Depends entirely on what kind of doctor you want to be, but that's where you really get the fundamental little itty bitty details of the kind of profession that you are going into. Uh, so that's where I think uh, Darius can uh, look into continuous training in Canada and indeed all around the world. Um, there is certainly a lot of exchanging that happens at the end of medical school. It's very, it's, it's not uncommon for a student to do residency in the same school that they did their training in. But I think it's fair to say that more students tend to look beyond their school to do their residency programs. So that's certainly one opportunity for practical learning. And then at the end of residency, there's another opportunity for practical learning called a fellowship. Uh, now, these tend to be extremely specific things for people who want to do some very specific training. For example, if you want to become a pediatric transplant surgeon, you can do a fellowship in pediatric transplant. If you want to, for example, be an endovascular surgeon, right, someone who clears out the, uh, the, the, the arteries and veins of the body, you can do a fellowship in that very specific procedure. Uh, so this depends on your personal preference. You know, if you want to do more school after that, even though it's not really school because you're just in a hospital, but in a different setting. Uh, but that's another opportunity for practical learning. So the short answer is there's lots of practical learning in your medical school, but after that you can do some in residency and after that you can do some more in fellowship should you wish. So lots of opportunity for practical learning. Well, thank you so much for telling us today so much. And uh, basically, I just want to say that uh, being a medical student in North America, that's something incredible. I know I've heard a lot about that. And um, I know that it's really tough. Very often, like in the city, I just see uh, people who are medical workers. That's obvious right here. And uh, well, mm, I just want to say that, I don't know, if I can anyhow express how people are respectful for what you do, even being a student, right? So I'd say that uh, we are all very thankful for what you're doing. I appreciate your, your kind words there, uh, Victoria. But just one more point is that, uh, yes, medicine is a very difficult academic journey. Medical Medicine as a career is very difficult as well. You will see things and do things and experience things that will question your fundamental humanity, that will make you question your life choices, it's difficult. And I don't think there's any point in trying to deny that or trying to soften that blow. This will be a very difficult journey, but it's an incredibly rewarding journey. There are times where, you know, people are on the brink of death and you can bring them back. Or people have some horrible debilitating condition and you can help them. And there is no better thing, in my, in my opinion at least, that you can do as a human being than to do that. So yes, there are huge, enormous challenges, academic, personal, you'll sacrifice a great deal. It's also quite a financial investment as well. Medical schools are one of the most expensive uh, schools that you can go to, with one exception, which is dental school, which tends to be a little bit more expensive, but that's another story for another day. It's a huge investment. It will cost you a lot in every way that a human can be challenged 
or tested, not just exams, personally, emotionally, socially, in every way. But at the end of it, you will get something that, at least in my opinion, is worth all of that. And that's the question that you need to ask yourself as well. If you're going into medical school to make someone else happy, to make your parents happy, don't do it because it's not going to be worth it. At the end of it, you're going to go through these struggles. And if you don't have that motivation to push you forward, if there's nothing you're reaching for, that's going to be a terrible, terrible experience for you. The other thing is if you're going into medicine for the money, please don't. There are so many other professions that you can earn a lot more money a lot quicker than medicine. And it's going to take so much out of you to earn that uh, supposed doctor's salary. So if you're doing this for the right reasons, you will find the motivation, but it is a difficult, difficult journey. And certainly there's a lot of help for you to, along that journey once you get started. But uh, the, the big step is getting into medical school. And it's a hard journey. It's a grueling journey. I was rejected from medical schools. Every colleague of mine, I'm sure, except for maybe one or two very rare exceptions, was rejected from at least one medical school that they applied to. So don't let that get you down. It's not about the application. It's about the journey that counts. And it may take one application cycle. It may take two. As for many of my colleagues, it took three. There's one person I know who took six applications to get in. But they were so determined to get into medicine, they just kept applying, kept applying, kept boosting their resume, kept doing that MCAT again and again to make sure they had the sufficient marks. So it's a long journey, but I wish you the best if you're doing this for the right reasons. And if you are, I'm sure at the end of it, you will have something truly of some value, as, and as, as Victoria so uh, kindly pointed out. Well, thank you, Minda, so much. Uh, well, for your inspiring speech, for everything you do, right, for coming today and sharing. We are really, really grateful. So thank you. I'll see you. Very welcome. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on Hi From Canada, the podcast. Please check out our Patreon page where you can find the transcripts for all our episodes. Join us on our social media to say hi. And be sure to drop us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Hi From Canada, the podcast is always excited to share some new information about Canada and inspire more people to take oils and come to the country where you can enjoy lots of things all together one place. Hi, I'm from Canada, the place that looks like a Christmas card. And you'll probably think there's a hockey rink in each Canadian backyard. You'd be right, but there's Mounties here and poutine and beer. If you come, you'll want to stay. So please come visit Canada, pristine, exquisite Canada. Hi, I'm from Canada. Ayy.